I want to give you a verse that I read before. In fact, we studied through it before when we were in Deuteronomy. It's Deuteronomy 32, verses 46 and 47. And it, it just struck me this week. It's a very, very powerful verse. And it's one that I, I believe would be worth committing to memory, worth having in our, in our minds. Moses is speaking to the children of Israel and he says, Take to your heart all the words which I am warning, with which I am warning you today, which you shall command your sons to observe carefully, even all the words of this law. And then verse 47, For it is not an idle word for you, indeed it is your life. Now tonight, as we finish out the first book of Kings, we'll begin with two men who don't understand this. They don't get the fact that the Word is your life. Now, I realize tonight I am preaching to the choir, but at least this has to get on tape for maybe someone to hear and to realize what you already know, that God's Word is your life. The more we know it, the more comfortable we are with it, the more time we spend in it, the more we will be able to handle and discern what's going on in the world around us. But the opposite is true as well. The less of the word that is in us, the less we're going to be able to really know what's right and what's wrong. And we are living in a day and an age where Jesus said, be careful. A lot of false Christs are going to come your way. And we say, well, I wouldn't believe a false Christ. Well, no one's going to come to you and say, Hi, I'm Mr. False Christ. But Satan is subtle and subversive. And in fact, I'm going to share with you in a moment a book that I was in the middle of reading this last week until I realized I came upon something. I was enjoying it, looking forward to what was going to happen next, caught up in the story, and then suddenly I realized that it was heresy. And the only reason I realized it was heresy is because of time that we spend together in the Word. An alarm went off, a red flag went up, and I went, wait a minute. What? What am I reading here? I did a little more research and discovered there was far more to come in this book that I hadn't read yet that was even more heretical than what tripped me up. So I'm going to share that with you in a few moments. But before we go any further, before we read beginning in verse Kings, 1 Kings chapter 20, let's pray one more time and ask the Lord to give us discernment and insight in His Word. Father, we ask that You will bless the study of Your Word tonight. And Father, as we go through these last couple and a half chapters of, of 1 Kings, may we not get lost in the history of it, but may we take it to heart, Father. I pray that it gives us increased perspective. Not, Father, so that we would be paranoid, but that we would be prepared. Not so we could be dogmatic, Lord, but we could be discerning. And I ask this blessing on our gathered fellowship tonight. Speak to us, Father, through your word in Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Well, let's start in verse 31. Verse 31 of 1 Kings chapter 20. This is uh, following what we studied on Sunday. You may recall that. As Ahab is victorious and the Lord fights for Israel both in the mountains and in the valleys, proving himself to be God of the mountains and God of the valleys, even though he may lead us into the valleys, sometimes difficult places where we struggle to know his will. But he's still God there. 
And he's proven this and shown this. And in verse 31, we pick up, and we're told that Ben-Hadad's servant said to him, I remember Ben-Hadad, he's the king of Aram, and he's the king that came against, was fighting against, against Ahab, there at Samaria, and then down in the valley, the Jezreel Valley. But it says, His servant said to him, to Ben-Hadad, Behold now, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Please, let us put sackcloth on our loins and ropes on our heads and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will save your life. And truly, the kings of Israel did have a reputation for being more merciful than the pagan kings around. There's still influence of the Lord, even though they were chasing after other gods. There was still a mercy that was unusual for the region. So verse 32 They girded sackcloth on their loins And put ropes on their heads And they came to the king of Israel And they said Your servant Ben-Hadad He says Please let me live And he said This is Ahab speaking Is he still alive? He's my brother His brother Who he's just in battle with Tried to kill him Now the men took this as an omen And quickly catching his word said Your brother, yes, your brother Ben-Hadad And then he said go bring him And then Ben-Hadad came out to him And he took him up into the chariot Which is a show of affection And encouragement and support I'm with you And Ben-Hadad verse 34 said to him The cities which my father took from your father I will restore And you shall make streets for yourself in Damascus As my father made in Samaria this is interesting because Ben-Hadad, remember the son of the shouter, big mouth, Ben-Hadad, before was saying he was going to wipe Ahab out. Well, now his turn has changed quite a bit. Well, Ahab said, I'll let you go with this covenant. And so he made a covenant with him and let him go. Verse 35, Now a certain man of the sons of the prophets said to another, By the word of the Lord, please strike me. But the man refused to strike him. And then he said to him, Because you have not listened to the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as you have departed from me, a lion will kill you. And as soon as he had departed from him, a lion found him and killed him. And then he found another man and said, Please, strike me. And the man struck him, wounding him. So the prophet departed and waited for the king by the way and disguised himself with a bandage over his eyes. As the king passed by, he cried to the king and said, Your servant went out into the midst of the battle, and behold, a man turned aside and brought a man to me and said, Guard this man. If for any reason he is missing, then your life shall be for his life, or else you shall pay a talent of silver. And while your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. And the king of Israel said to him, So shall your judgment be. You yourself have decided it. Well, then he hastily took the bandage away from his eyes. And the king of Israel recognized him that he was of the prophets. And he said to him, Thus says the Lord, Because you have let out of your hand the man whom I had devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall go for his life, and your people for his people. So the king of Israel went to his house sullen and vexed and came to Samaria. Another unnamed prophet enters this story and goes to speak with Ahab. Kind of in the same way that Nathan went to David. Remember back in 1 Samuel chapter 12, Nathan shows up, sorry, 2 Samuel 12. Nathan shows up to David and tells him kind of a parable about a little lamb. If you recall that story, it was to get David thinking about what the true punishment should be before he revealed the fact that the little lamb was Bathsheba and he, David, was the man in, in question. Well now, this prophet is doing the same thing. He's coming in parable form to Ahab, trying to get Ahab to think through a situation and then pronounce his own judgment. And that's what goes on 
Ahab now can understand as well as determine his own punishment for ignoring the intentions of God. What were the intentions of God? That Ben-Hadad be killed. He was devoted for destruction. Now we don't see in the scriptures before this where the Lord said to Ahab, kill Ben-Hadad. But we know because of what comes after here that that was told to Ahab. That Ben-Hadad was, quote, devoted for destruction. That he was to die, that he was to be put to death in this battle or after the battle if he was captured. But Ahab, the evil king of Israel, is the victor. He's basking in the glorious win. His pride swells and so he grants clemency. He's the big chief now. You know, it kind of feels good to be merciful. You know, come on up in the chariot. Now I've got the upper hand, so I'll grant clemency. Besides the fact, and I'm assuming something here, but I think it's true, Ahab must have thought Ben-Hadad is more valuable alive than he is dead. Because if I can make an alliance with him, which he does here, if we can make a covenant together, then I'll have Aram and its king on my northern border buffering me and the growing threat of a nation called Assyria. So I can have him up there. I've got this guy ready to fight with me. And in fact, we know historically in 853 B.C., just three years after this event, Israel and Aram did join forces against Shalmaneser III. You don't have to remember that name. But he was the king of Assyria. We know this factually because in a document written by Shalmaneser himself, dated back to 853 B.C., Shalmaneser mentions a war against Israel and Aram. So we know these two kings made an alliance and then they went up against Assyria and those documents are displayed in the British Museum today. So it would seem, from Ahab's perspective, that this is a wise political move. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 19 says, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. So then let no one boast in men. The problem with Ahab is he's, he's thinking through things on his, on his own. He's using his own wisdom. He overrides God's word with his own wisdom. Like he knows better than what God knows. God says, I want you to kill Zen-Hadad. And Ahab thinks, yeah, but there's a better way. There's another way. I hear your word, Lord. I hear what you're saying to me. But I've got a good idea here. I'm going to make an alliance. And unwittingly, by doing so, Ahab signs his own death warrant. Because just after the battle between Aram and Israel, when they go up and fight Assyria, right after that, another battle occurs between Israel and Aram. And Ahab is going to be killed in that battle. We'll read about that in a few minutes in chapter 22. Had Ahab done things the Lord's way, even not being able to see what God could see, there would have been no Ben-Hadad to lead Aram to war against Israel. Ahab would have lived. But because he chose to go his own way, well, you see, this is what Moses meant in Deuteronomy. Indeed, it is your life. The word is your very life. Now, hold that thought and consider the other man who ignored the word of God. It's an interesting and bizarre story that's kind of stuck in here. You almost get confused and trip over it because you're like, wait, wait, what? who's this certain man of the son of the prophets? What's going on here? Here's the deal. One of the other prophets, not Elijah, he's gone dormant for a while. He's pretty quiet. We haven't heard from him in a bit. 
One of these other prophets now comes to a friend of his or comes to another man and says, Hey, I need you to strike me. The word of the Lord to you from me as a prophet is, You need to strike me. Go ahead, punch me. Give me a slap in the face. I need a wound here. And his friend won't do it. And he makes it clear, this is the word of the Lord telling you, you need to strike me. And his friend refuses, and so he says, well, then I guess what's going to happen is you're going to be killed by a lion. And indeed, that's what happens, because his friend wouldn't strike the prophet, a lion kills him. It's one of those stories you read by and go, wow, just weird stuff happening in Scripture. And then the same prophet, he goes a little bit further, he grabs another person and says, okay, hit me, I need you to hit me. So the next guy does, and the prophet then is able to bring this prophecy to Ahab the way he is supposed to. Think about this other guy, who like Ahab also ignored the word of the Lord, and in so doing, lost his life. The son of the prophets said to another, by the word of the Lord, strike me. But the man refused to strike him, and he said to him, because you have not listened to the voice of the Lord, behold, as soon as you have departed from me, a lion will kill you. Now what's interesting to me about this story, it may seem harsh, but at this point, the people of Israel still did not understand the seriousness of disobedience to the word. But what gets my attention again here is this isn't the first time we've seen the exact same fallout for disobeying the word of the Lord, is it? Remember just recently, back in 1 Kings chapter, uh, First Kings chapter 13, another man of God was sent on a specific mission. He goes on that mission to Jeroboam to prophesy against the altar. He does a phenomenal job. He prophesies against the altar. The altar, altar splits. He tells what's going to happen. Jeroboam is freaked out by it and invites him to his house. He says, no, I can't go to your house because the word of the Lord came to me and said, do not stay around for dinner. So he doesn't. He begins to leave. Remember the story that another prophet, an old prophet, invites him to stick around. He does. And he loses his life. He is killed also by a lion who is just waiting for him. 1 Kings 13.24 says, When he had gone, a lion met him on the way and killed him. And his body was thrown on the road. Twice now, someone ignores the word of the Lord. Strange word in both cases. That's odd. Don't stay for dinner. You want me to travel all the way to Jeroboam, pronounce this prophecy, and I can't stay and eat? Alright, that's weird. Doesn't make any sense to me. Oh, and by the way, the Lord says, don't go home the way you came. Go home by another way. So you're putting me even further out of my... Well, okay, it doesn't make sense. And surely when this older prophet invites the young prophet to stay, he probably thinks, "Ah, you know, I did everything else exactly as the Lord said. This doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. So I'm going to do it my way. And he's killed by the lion. This other man has a prophet. What would you do? If someone at the bridge came up to you and said, the word of the Lord told me you've got to hit me in the face, Dan. Come on, take me out. Come on, right here. I mean, you think, that's just an odd request. It's a strange thing. In both cases, both of these men are killed by a lion. When something's repeated in Scripture, it is not by coincidence. We now see this same type of incident happening twice. What is the point? I think you know what the message is. The lion is just waiting for someone to waver from God's word. The Lord says, here's what I want. And we say, well, it doesn't make sense. And the lion is waiting. And this message is absolutely clear. The reason the man of God in chapter 13 and this prophet in chapter 20 are killed by the lion is the exact same reason both men rejected the word of the Lord. Both men disobeyed the word of the Lord. And so... You might say, well, what, God's going to strike me with a lion attack if I reject his word? No. 
Peter says, 1 Peter 5, 8, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Jesus said in John 6, 63, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10, he said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. But before that... He said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. So what would you have? My word that leads to life or the thief who brings you death? Those really are the two options. His word is not random rhetoric. As much as we may not understand it, it's literal life. Now, the reason I mention this so often is this. The real strength of Satan is not when he freaks us out. It's not the big scary stuff. It's not the grandiose evils by which he makes us shudder and fall back in fear. Man, when he does those things, we know it's him. It's obvious. The heavy-duty evils in the world, the strength of Satan gang is his subtlety. It's when he slides one by us. It's when he says something or does something or presents something to us and it looks so good and it feels so right. The lion's roar is never as dangerous as his silent stalking. I mean, that's true in nature. When the lion's roaring, all the animals know exactly where he is and there's nothing to fear. You just stay away from him. But when he is silently moving through the African brush, those big paws padding their way toward the prey, that's when he's dangerous. And that is the true threat of Satan. By subtle and subversive means, Satan is going to bring about the promised apostasy in the church itself. And the Bible is very clear about that. What do you mean apostasy? It means falling away. Listen to Second uh, Timothy. You can turn there and just listen if you'd like. I'll read it quickly to you. Second Timothy in chapter 3. Paul is writing to Timothy. This may be familiar to some of you, but he says in verse 1 of 2 Timothy 3, Realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. So we don't even have to wonder if that's going to happen. We know it will. Verse 7 of that same chapter, Paul talks to Timothy about people who are always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Why? Well, he says another place because they're into tickling. They want to have their ears tickled rather than hearing the truth. So how do we discern truth in this growing apostasy in the last days? The apostasy that the Bible says will come within the church. The church itself is going to fall. Oh, not not the church that's going to be raptured. Not the true church that God knows and will be calling home. But there is a religious system that looks very much like the church and will come from within the church. There is an apostasy that will be a great falling away. How do we avoid that? How do we not get caught up in that great falling? The answer is simple. Do not waver from the word. Do not waver from the word. Hide it in your heart, the Bible says. Meditate on it day and night, the Bible says. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. Test everything against the truth of Scripture. Down in verse 13 of 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says, Evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, to Timothy, and I think by extension to us, 
Continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Verse 1 of chapter 4, he goes on and says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is able to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom preach the word be ready in season and out of season rebuke and reprove and exhort and with great patience and instruction he says the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine but wanting to have their ears tickled they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and I'm seeing it all the time it's the one thing that upsets me more than anything else on the Christian scene today is the way people within Christianity within the church are going after teachers within accordance with, with their own desires it says they will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths now I want to pause a moment here and give you an example of what we could call the subtlety of satanic subversion. A book that is out on the scene, and I, part of the reason I'm upset about this is because of the way this particular book is being so embraced in the Christian world. All you have to do is flip it over and read the endorsements on the back of this book, Michael W. Smith, saying this is a phenomenal book. Naomi, not Naomi Judd, the other, one of the Judd sisters, Winona. Wonderful book, came to me at just the right time. You may have heard of this book, you may not have, it's called The Shack. The Shack, written by William P. Young. And the Christian world is going gaga over this book. It's a fiction story. Now, it's an interesting story. And I began reading it and going through it. But gang, it's a story about a man named Mac, whose daughter named Missy is murdered at the age of five. And he goes into this thing called The Great Sadness. By the way, Eugene Peterson endorsed this book. He's the one who wrote the message. He endorsed this book saying this is going to be um, the Pilgrim's Progress for this generation. That's how highly praised this book was by him. I read these endorsements on the back and went, oh, this has got to be great. And I began making my way through it. Mac is this guy who enters into this great sadness because of his daughter being killed. And he ends up getting called back to this shack, and the shack is where the murder happens. And indeed, even when he goes back there, there's still bloodstains on the ground. It's very emotional. Very. I told Cheryl, you might not want to read it because she doesn't like stuff where kids are taken from their parents. And it's very emotional and very stirring, and it, it draws you in. But he gets this, this letter, this note, inviting him to come to the shack, and it's just signed, Papa. Well, Papa... Papa is his wife's name for God. It's how she refers to God. Father. Abba. I mean, it's that, I'm reading that going, that's cool, Papa. I mean, that, that, it's so endearing. And so he goes back to this shack to meet God, Papa. He's not sure. Maybe the killer's going to be there. He doesn't know. And he gets back to the shack. And he's met at the door as all of a sudden things change. And, and it's the middle of winter, but all of a sudden it's spring. And it's beautiful and the colors are vibrant. And he comes up to this door and the door opens and Papa steps out. Papa is a large black woman wearing an apron. Um, 
looking a lot like kind of you can imagine Aunt Jemima. Just welcoming and big voiced and happy to see him and come on in and just, I mean, completely disarming. I'm reading it going, and this is before you realize who, who this large black woman is, but she's so inviting. And so you're invited right on in the shack along with Mac. You go in there and suddenly you find out that that she's God in the Trinity. This large black woman who has continued to call, be called Papa throughout the story. Um, there's a big-nosed Middle Eastern Jewish stereotype who is Jesus. And then the Holy Spirit is represented by a wispy Asian woman named Sarayu. Or Sarayu. Regarding the Trinity gang, it bears all the marks of heresy. In the way it describes and professes God between these three. And there are so many subtle things about it. I don't even have time to go into all of them tonight. But I'll just, the big obvious one, and the one that kind of made me hit the brakes the first. God represented as a woman. Now, ladies, no offense, but there's not a single time in all of Scripture where God is ever mentioned in the feminine. Now, Jesus had certain feminine qualities. I mean, he cried, he loved the children, he was tender hearted. But he was a man. And I'm not saying that... I'm not trying to be sexist here, but the reality is God chose to represent himself the way he chose to represent himself, even in the fact that all of Scripture refers to him as he. Him. And so there's never a single time, biblically, where we see him represented in the way he all of a sudden is in this book. I believe there are earlier names for goddess worship, like Ashtoreth. And this whole idea, and you might think, oh, come on, Rick, you're, you're, you're overthinking this thing. Well, it is a subtle way to think. How far are you when you're looking at God as this, this woman in the story? How far away from Mary are we? It's just a, a slight shift. Well, well, yeah, why not worship Mary as mother of God? Because she brings the loving and the mothering and the comfort that, that we don't really quite have with God. The Holy Spirit is a wispy Asian woman. So two people of the Trinity are, are women in this story. And the whole thing is about, you know, he talks about, well, I don't want you to think in terms of religious stereotypes. Hey, religious stereotypes are one thing, but what the Bible declares is truth, I thought. The teaching in this book goes far beyond that, though, in its subtlety and subversion. Even the obvious misrepresentation of God in this fictional Trinity. Here are a couple of quotes from the book. Just listen with your own ears. On page 181 to 182, uh, the Jesus character is saying, Remember, those who love me are free to live in love without any agenda. Now, I'm just going to insert this. We do have an agenda when we follow Jesus, and it's to proclaim Jesus to the world for salvation. And it's to proclaim Jesus as the only way to be saved. That's our agenda. Agenda is not a bad thing when it's in the hands of God. He has given us an agenda for our lives. Okay, So he says, those who love me are free to live in love without any agenda. And then Mac asks, is that what it means to be a Christian? And Jesus replies, Jesus, who said anything about being a Christian? I'm not a Christian. Which actually makes sense because he is the Christ. So <laughs> you wouldn't have to be a Christ follower because he's the Christ himself. But he says, those who love me come from every system that exists. They were Buddhists, Mormons, Baptists, Muslims, Democrats, Republicans, and many who don't vote or are not part of any Sunday morning or religious institutions. I have no desire to make them Christian, but I do want to join them in their transformation into sons and daughters of my papa and into my brothers and sisters. Now you hear that and kind of go, Alright, you know, I, I see what the author's maybe saying. 
kind of, you know, that people have come out of all these different places and, and once they've come to accept and believe in Jesus, they're, they're saved, right? That's what he means. And so this is the thinking I was having as I'm reading these very statements. But the, the Christian thing bothered me. In fact, there are early pages in this story that, that talk about, that really picket Christianity. So they go after it and make fun of even the Bible, saying that book with gilt pages, you know, referring to the gold gilt pages, but then says, or is it gilt, G-U-I-L-T, is it gilt pages? And that kind of bothered me a little bit, but I figured, oh, the author just has, you know, he's got some issues he's trying to work out in his book. Well, this whole Christian thing where the Jesus... Uh, character says I have no desire to make them Christian Acts 11.26 says that for an entire year they Paul and Barnabas met with the church and taught considerable numbers and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch whether you like the name Christian or not that's what they were called now they originally were called it in kind of a demeaning way because it means Christ follower or little Christ little followers of Christ but the disciples embraced it and clung to it to the point that Peter would say this 1 Peter 4.16 If anyone suffers as a Christian he is not to be ashamed but is to glorify God in this name. Dang, I'm to embrace my Christianity. There's nothing shameful about being called a Christian. But there is something in the emergent church and in the postmodern culture that there's a denial of bearing the name of Christ. Well, let's not call ourselves Christians because there's too much baggage that comes with that. You know what? I'll carry that baggage. I bear that name. The name of Christ, I will carry it with me to the grave or to the sky, either one. Here's another quote. Page 203 in the shack. The Holy Spirit character, Sara Yu, the Asian woman, now is saying, Enforcing rules is a vain attempt to create certainty out of uncertainty. And contrary to what you might think, I have a great fondness for uncertainty. Rules cannot bring freedom. They only have the power to accuse. And by the way, this quote from the shack is straight out of the New Age book called A Course in Miracles. That is where that quote comes from. But this whole idea of rules cannot bring freedom, they only have the power to accuse. No, rules can bring us to Christ. That's what the law was given for. It was a schoolmaster to lead us to Jesus. And this comment about, contrary to what you might think, I have a great fondness for uncertainty. Gang, it is not for uncertainty that Jesus died. It is for certainty. It is so that we can know that we are saved. Without the shadow of a doubt. God isn't up there playing these games and playing around and trying to leave us in this, in this fog and this cloud. He is a certain God with a certain salvation brought to us by a certain son on a certain cross who certainly died to save our lives. In John 8, 31 and 32, Jesus was saying to the Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. Now I'm not going to go any further with this tonight. I don't have time. But for more information I encourage you. If you want to read about the shack. Maybe you've read the book. And you're going, well man I didn't have that experience at all. I thought it was, it was like a warm blanket. So did I. And that's what's in the Because it feels so good. And I found myself. Pastor Rick here. Trying to explain away some things that I should have caught early on. But go to chalice.com, www.chalice.com. Tim Chalies, he's a, an internet blogger, a Christian blogger, pretty sharp young man, and uh, he does a 17-page review on the book where he talks about all this, and he goes into some scriptures and talks about things, and it's an interesting place to go and read up. The other thing, if you want something fun to do on this, go to YouTube and look up Mark Driscoll, pastor of... Uh, 
of Mars Hill down in Seattle, and Mark Driscoll has a seven-minute YouTube video where he goes off on the shack. And where he says, hey, if you haven't read the shack, don't bother. Don't even read it. And he calls it outright heresy. I don't bring this up to try and take away sales from this guy who wrote this book. But I bring it up as an example that if we are in the Word, we will catch these things. But if we're not, we won't. Because again, the book felt great until something just wasn't right. And that voice that says something's not right here, gang, it comes from the Word. And it comes from the Spirit and its discernment. And we need it in these days. Well, let's read on. Chapter 21. It came about after these things that Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard which was in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, the king of Samaria. And Ahab spoke to Naboth, and he said, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is close beside my house. And I will give you a better vineyard than it in its place. If you like, I'll give you the price of it in money. So, sounds reasonable. Ahab wants Naboth's vineyard. Verse 3. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid me that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. So Ahab came into his house sullen and vexed. And this is the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and ate no food. How pathetic. Ahab wanted Naboth's garden. Now, just so you know, Naboth is not being pig-headed about it. Saying, no, I'm not going to sell it to you. No way. Get out, of my, get out of my garden. When he says, the Lord forbid... He's not just carelessly throwing out a phrase that sometimes we hear or use in our culture, God forbid that I should give you the land. That's not the point. He is saying the Lord forbids this. It is forbidden for me even to sell you the land. This isn't just a sentimental, emotional tie that that Naboth has to the land. He knows that he is forbidden to sell it. Leviticus chapter 25 and verse 23 tells us the following. The land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine, for you are but aliens and sojourners with me. Thus, for every piece of your property, you are to provide for the redemption of the land. If a fellow countryman of yours becomes so poor he has to sell part of his property, then his nearest kinsman is to come and buy back what his relative has sold. Or in case a man has no kinsman, but so recovers his means as to find sufficient for its redemption, then he shall calculate the years since its sale and refund the balance to the man to whom he sold it, and so return to his property. But if he has not found sufficient means to get it back for himself, then what he has sold shall remain in the hands of his purchaser until the year of Jubilee, that every 50 year uh, celebration, that the Jubilee it shall revert, that he may return to his property. God had a great plan in place for property in Israel. Property was important to God. And so when a person had a certain amount of land, it would never fully or completely leave that family. It was always in that family's hands. And if someone became so impoverished that they had to sell the land, worst case scenario, when that year of Jubilee came around, he was supposed to get the land back. But anyway, the people were not supposed to sell their land. They were not supposed to sell off their inheritance. And so that's what's going on with Naboth. I I can't do it by the the law of the Lord, by the word of God. I, I I can't do it. And so Ahab, pathetic little baby, throws himself down on his bed and turns away his face and eats no food. I've seen it. Saw it recently. I won't go into the story with Hayden, but I saw it recently with my youngest. Plops down in bed and faces the wall. <coughs> I'm going to eat dinner now. I can get what I want, you know. 
And that's what Ahab's doing. It's, it's, it's really sad. He's got the kingdom at his disposal. I mean, he can, he can buy anything. He's got a palace in Samaria. He's got a palace, obviously, right here in the Jezreel Valley. But he throws this passive-aggressive tantrum because he can't have Naboth's garden. Part of Ahab's wickedness, gang, is a material mindset. And the material mindset is simply this. It's not what you have. It's what you have to get. Because what you have is never enough. If I've got a material mindset, I'm never going to be truly content. I have to amass more and more and more. That's the polar opposite of contentment. Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, We have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Remember, if indeed this book is your life. It's not just an idle word. This is your life. Well, Ahab is clearly discontent, clearly upset, throwing his tantrum. Enter Jezebel, verse 5. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, How is it that your spirit is so sullen and that you are not eating food? So he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else if it pleases you, I will give you a vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Which, by the way, is not what Naboth said. He said, The Lord forbid that I should do so. Uh, The Lord won't let me do so. I, I can't. Well, Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now reign over Israel? Arise, eat bread, let your heart be joyful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal and sent letters to the elders and the nobles who were living with Naboth in his city. And now she wrote in the letters saying, Proclaim a fast and seat Naboth at the head of the people and seat two worthless men before him and let them testify against him saying you cursed God and the king then take him out and stone him to death Hmm. so the men of the city the elders and the nobles who lived in the city did as Jezebel sent word to them just as it was written in the letters which she had sent them they proclaimed a fast and they seated Naboth at the head of the table and by the way the fast would have a religious look to it Make it look spiritual. It's a pretense of spirituality around this undermining truth that she wants to see Naboth dead. And verse 13 says, Then the two worthless men, literally men of Belial, came in and sat before him. And the worthless men testified against him, even against Naboth, before the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. And then they sent word to Jezebel saying, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. When Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money. For Naboth is not alive, but is dead. And when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. Verse 17, Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. It's been six years since we last heard from Elijah. When we left him, remember he was in that mid-ministry crisis. Goes all the way back to Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. And there he meets with God and God comes to him as a still, small voice. And right after that, Elijah comes back. But the next thing he does is he throws his mantle, mantle on Elisha and says, Come on and follow me. I'm going to train you up. You're going to be, you're going to be my disciple. And that's it. No more Elijah. For six years... The greatest prophet alongside Moses in Israel's history goes quiet. We hear nothing about him. 
Lots of prophets are sent to Ahab, you might recognize here. Many different men are used, and they're all going out, and they're doing the will of the Lord, but not Elijah. What is going on with Elijah? What's happening with him? I don't know. We have no idea. I can make a guess, though. Because of the last thing we saw him do, putting his mantle on Elisha, I think he was probably engaged in some of the most important work of his entire career, and that was training Elisha. Preparing Elisha to take over for the next generation. The Bible says in Ephesians 4.11 that he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And so God is into training up. And I think that's what Elijah has been doing all this time. But if you read on a little bit further, it says... The Lord says, The word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone down to take possession of it. And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, Have you murdered and also taken possession? And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, In the place where the dogs lick up the blood of Naboth, the dogs will lick up your blood, even yours. Ahab said to Elijah, when he sees him here, he says, Have you found me, O my enemy? And he answered, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring evil upon you and will utterly sweep you away and will cut off Ahab from Ahab, every male, both bond and free, in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, because of the provocation which, which, with which you have provoked me to anger and because you have made Israel sin. Of Jezebel also has the Lord spoken, saying, The dogs will eat Jezebel in the district of Jezreel. The one belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs will eat. And the one who dies in the field, the birds of heaven will eat. Surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. He acted very abominably in following idols. And according to all that the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the sons of Israel. Now before we go on, husbands, take note of this. Men specifically listen. The Lord holds Ahab responsible for the murder of Naboth. Ahab didn't kill him. In fact, the murder wasn't even Ahab's idea. It was Jezebel's idea. Jezebel sent the letters in Ahab's name. As far as we know from reading the story, he was fully unaware of her plan to kill Naboth. She just said, I'm going to get it for you. Don't worry about it. You go have dinner, I'll take care of it, honey. <laughs> and so, Jezebel's the murderess, not Ahab, and yet the Lord holds Ahab responsible. He holds the husband responsible for the actions of the wife. He whines to her, so she fights for him. I call it potting pillow talk. And potting pillow talk can be deafening. What do you mean? I mean, it's hard to hear the Lord when a spouse is grumbling. And married couples, hear me on this. It is hard to hear what the Lord is saying when we are grumbling with our wives, men. Wives, when you're grumbling with your husband, when we're... About whatever it is. 
You know, a lot of times in marriage we think because we have the front door closed and we're alone in our house and no one else hears and we're one anyway, we can share every bit of grumbling and griping and gossip that we want to. And the reality is the more we share that grumbling together, the less we hear the Lord. Psalm 106.24, talking about Israel, says they despised the pleasant land. They did not believe in His word, but grumbled in their tents. They did not listen to the voice of the Lord. Because you can't hear the voice of the Lord when you're grumbling in your tent. Several times in Scripture, this issue comes up. The grumbling of the husband and the wife in the tent. It's unhealthy, it's dangerous, and it stops up your ears from hearing God. Peter says this in 1 Peter 3.7. He says, You husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker. Don't throw stones yet, ladies. As with someone weaker, since she is a woman, show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. The word weaker, when Peter says this, does not imply lesser. What it implies is a woman is a vessel of more sensitivity than a man. And Peter is saying to husbands, you be careful what you dump on your wives. We have a way, guys, we have a way of burping up our frustrations. You know, we come home and... You know, the stuff of the day, the stuff that makes me angry, the stuff with the church, the stuff with my work, whatever, blah, we burp it up, and then we're fine, it's all out. I've taken care of it, I'm going on. The next morning I wake up and I'm moving on, and guess what? Cheryl's got that stuff all over her. And it tends not to leave women as easily as it does men. We're a little more boneheaded that way, you know, we just kind of get it out and we move on. Women are more sensitive and emotionally tuned in, and are more likely to carry this stuff longer than we guys will. And guys, I'm not suggesting you keep things from your wives, but I'm suggesting you think twice before barfing your daily complaints all over her and leaving her to deal with that mess. Ahab whines and pouts, so Jezebel sets some serious sin in motion. And the Lord says, you know what, Ahab? It's your fault. I'm holding you responsible for this entire thing. Jezebel, by the way, violates at least three of the Ten Commandments. Together they violate four. Commandment number nine, bearing false witness. Commandment number six, murder. Commandment number eight, stealing. Not to mention commandment number ten, Ahab's problem, which is covetousness. So four of the Ten Commandments, all in one fell swoop, this wicked couple, violate together. So how does this end? Ahab and Jezebel, they get fried, right? Well, the rest of the story may shock you. Look at verse 27. It came about when Ahab heard these words that he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about despondently. Well, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring evil in his days, but I will bring the evil upon his house in his son's days. This shocked me. God's giving grace to Ahab. Ahab who, who, who whined to his wife and pouted and coveted, and his wife who then kills him. What about Naboth? That's not fair, God. Ahab gets off because he shows a little humility, but Naboth's dead. How is that justice here? Well, a couple of things to note. A few things grab the attention of the Lord like humility does. And Ahab truly is humble. In this one bright shining moment of his entire life, Ahab actually shows Humility. He actually gets down before the Lord and, and he feels despondent and sorry about what has happened. 
And few things motivate and move the Lord to grace like a humble heart. That's what he's looking for. He looks for faith. He looks for humility. And those two things excite the Father. Ahab is rotten to the core. But he has this moment of humility and the Lord loves it. James 4, 6 says God is opposed to the proud but he gives grace to the humble. And so the Lord graces Ahab's humility. But what about the justice for Naboth? I don't understand that. It's not fair to him. Listen, there is a subtle picture of both grace and justice embedded in this story. A picture that we can see if we look at it. You may may have already caught it. It has to do with another vineyard owner. In Matthew chapter 21... Verse 33, Jesus tells a parable. He says, There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. And when the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive the produce. But the vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves, larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? Jesus says. Naboth's vineyard is very similar to the father's vineyard. Naboth's story and Jesus' story are strikingly alike. Both men, both Naboth and Jesus, are testified against by false witnesses. Both of them are set up in the same manner. Both men are murdered due to jealousy over a vineyard, covetousness of a vineyard. You see, in Naboth's uh, situation, it was his literal vineyard that Ahab coveted. In Jesus' situation, it was the vineyard of Israel that was coveted by the chief priests and leaders of the people of Israel. They wanted the vineyard for themselves. And I point this out because the Lord provides this perfect grace and justice in the cross. Justice for Naboth. Do you realize that God can give grace to Ahab? He could even save Ahab and still provide the justice that is required for the death of Naboth. How does he do it? Because Jesus died. Jesus paid the penalty. Had Ahab remained in his humble place before the Lord, I guarantee you that the death of Jesus on the cross would be sufficient to pay even for the sins of Ahab and provide justice for Naboth. Because the the cross provides just that. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness, now listen to this, because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed, which would have included the sin of Ahab and Jezebel. He passes over those sins... For the demonstration, Paul says, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Ahab could be justified, made righteous, graced, even though he did this horrendous thing. Now, I share that because that's good news for those of you who are wicked like Ahab. (laughs) If Ahab could be saved, and he could have been, Anybody can be saved. And the righteous requirements of God are taken care of in Jesus. I like to look at it as a timeline. 
and you place a cross on the timeline at this point in history, but the cross not only provides forward for all the sin committed after the crucifixion, but Paul tells us it provides backward too. Father, in his forbearance, passed over all of these sins. He said, okay, I see those sins. I'm going to wait. If you will die in faith in me, if you will have faith in me, and trust me, when the cross happens, when Jesus dies, I will wash those sins away too. Ahab could have been saved. Well, is Ahab saved? I kind of doubt it. Because, well, you're going to see. Now you might say, well, there's one other thing that bothers me here. He says, I will not bring evil in Ahab's days, but I will bring evil upon his house in his son's days. Well, is that because Ahab was evil? No. It's because his son Ahaziah will continue in his father's evil. Now hang with me. Chapter 22 and we're done. And it's not as long as you might think. Verse 1. Three years passed without war between Aram and Israel. In the third year, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel. He came down to the king of Israel. Now, Samaria is north of Judah. Israel's north of Judah. But any time you come from Judah, you're coming from Jerusalem, you always go down from Jerusalem. So he came down from the, to the king of Israel. Now the king of Israel said to his servants, Do you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us? And we are still doing nothing to take it out of the hand of the king of Aram. And he said to Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to battle at Ramoth Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Moreover, Jehoshaphat, who by the way is a good king, he's the king of Judah, he said to the king of Israel, Please inquire first for the word of the Lord. Well, let's see what Yahweh has to say about this. Well, then the king of Israel, this is Ahab, gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, Shall I go against Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall I refrain? And they said, Go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not yet a prophet of Yahweh? A prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of him? <laughs> you see, Ahab gathered all of his prophets. Prophets of Baal, Asherah. And they all said, oh yeah, Yahweh says go for it. And Jehoshaphat, he's a pretty sharp discerning king. And he says, can we get a Yahweh prophet up here? I'd like to check with him first. Verse 8, the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, there is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him. <laughs> because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. He is Micaiah, son of Imla. But Jehoshaphat said, well let not the king say so. Oh, don't, don't hate him. Let, let, let's, let's check with him. Then the king of Israel called an officer and said, Bring quickly Micaiah the son of Imla. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat king of Judah were sitting each on his throne, arrayed in their robes at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And all the prophets were prophesying before them. And then Zedekiah the son of Chenaanah made horns of, of iron for himself and said, Thus says the Lord, With these you shall gore the Arameans until they are consumed. And all the prophets were prophesying thus, saying, Go up to Ramoth Gilead and prosper, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. Well, then the messenger who went to summon Micaiah spoke to him, saying, Behold now, the words of the prophets are uniformly favorable to the king. <laughs> Please let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, As the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I shall speak. Well, when he came to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall we refrain? And he answered him, Oh, go up and succeed, and the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. He's mocking him. 
He's playing along with the other prophets. And we know he's mocking because the king says to him, How many times must I adjure you to speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Stop playing around, in other words. What, what is the truth here? And so he said in verse 17, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains like sheep which have no shepherd. Shepherd would be Ahab. In other words, he's dead. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let each of them return to his house in peace. And then the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me but evil? Just don't like this guy. Verse 19, Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne. And all the hosts of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. The Lord said... Who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? By the way, that word entice in the Hebrew is persuade. Who will be a persuasive individual? God speaking here to all the host of heaven. And one said this while another said that. Verse 21, Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. The Lord said to him, How? And he said, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all the prophets. And then he said, you are to entice him and also prevail. Go and do so. Now therefore, behold, the Lord has put a deceiving spirit. Listen to that. The Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. And the Lord has proclaimed disaster against you. Well, then Zedekiah, the son of Chineana, came near and he struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, How did the Spirit of the Lord pass from me to you? Now hang on a second. Before we go any further. You might say, I thought Ahab had repented. What's going on here? Well, apparently he hadn't repented. Apparently the repentance, the humility was very short-lived and his lifelong wicked character is winning out. But there's a tougher question going on here. How can a lying, deceiving spirit, first of all, how can he have access to heaven? Micaiah, this prophet, if what he's telling us is true, is saying that there in heaven there was a deceitful spirit. He said, I'll go to do this, I'll take care of it, I will lie my way through this process. And the Lord says, great, sounds good to me. How did this deceitful spirit, this demonic spirit, get into heaven? How does he have access? And the answer to that, gang, is Satan currently has access to heaven. He's not barred, not yet. Oh yeah, he was cast out. The Bible tells us he was cast down, but Satan and his hordes still have access visas. They can still get in. They can still come before the Father. Well, how do you know this? Job chapter 1. In Job chapter 2, read them for yourselves. Satan comes before God and has a conversation with him in heaven. Satan's there. If you read Zechariah chapter 3, similar situation. A conversation happening in heaven between a demonic spirit and an angel in the presence of God. Jude chapter 1 verse 9, telling us that Michael uh, doesn't pronounce a railing judgment against Satan, but says the Lord rebuke you. And so there's interaction going on here. The demons still have access. Revelation calls Satan the accuser of the brethren who day and night stands accusing us before the Lord, which is part of the reason we need an intercessor in Jesus. To turn right around and say, no, what Satan's saying is not true. No, that's a lie. No, it's an accusation. No, I know this one. He's one of mine. And so the Lord intercedes for us daily. 
But a day is coming and is not far off when the devil will lose his beast. So Revelation chapter 1 says there's a war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war and they were not strong enough and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And gang, that is not a past tense situation. It's a future tense situation. It is about to happen. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. So, Rick, you're saying this deceitful spirit is demonic, but had access to heaven. That's right. And, and he can't make a move without God's permission. Which brings us to the second difficult question. Didn't we recently just see in the teaching that God can by no means lie? That God won't use lies to further His will? That the Lord will not use deceit? That He in and of Himself cannot lie? Doesn't the Bible tell us that? Hebrews 6.18 says, By two unchangeable things, it is impossible for God to lie. Those two unchangeable things are His character and His word. Based on those two things, his nature and the words he speaks, he absolutely cannot lie. We who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. So it's true, God cannot lie. And yet a deceitful spirit sent from the Lord goes to put deceit in the mouth of all these prophets. So if God can't lie and a deceitful spirit goes out from him, how does this work? Well, let me ask you one more question. Is it a lie or a deceit if you tell the person that you're lying to them? Now this just caught me because I struggled with this question all week long. I looked at this and went, how do we get around this, Lord? And then I realized, wait a minute. He sends Micaiah the prophet to tell him exactly what's going on, so it's not a lie. He tells Ahab ahead of time about the deceit of these prophets. He, he answers the question himself. Because there is no deceit found in the Lord. And Micaiah the prophet, when he comes to the Lord, I think the Lord motivated Jehoshaphat, the king, to ask for a prophet from the Lord. Because the Lord determined that no one, that, that everyone would know this was a lie, this was a deceit, this is not the truth. And Micaiah clearly reveals the deceiving spirit for what it is. And now, this apparent leader of the false prophet, Zedekiah, the son of Chenayana, he also reveals that the spirit is not with him. It tells us in verse 24 again that he struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, How did the Spirit of the Lord pass from me to you? Well, the Spirit of the Lord clearly was not with Zedekiah at all. How do we know that? Because the fruit of the Spirit is not striking you on the face. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. The things that actually we see in Micaiah as he presents the truth. But we don't see it in these other prophets. James chapter 3 verse 17 says, The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruit, unwavering, without hypocrisy, and the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So the fruit of the Spirit is obviously absent in this guy. And you might take a note of that. If it's not spoken in love, it's probably not from the Lord. It may be difficult, it may be challenging, it may be convicting, but if it's not spoken in love, 
It's not of the Lord because it's not of the fruit of the Spirit. Verse 25. So Micaiah said, Behold, you shall see on that day when you enter into an inner room to hide yourself. He's answering this Zedekiah, which, by the way, the prophets most likely did when Israel is routed here in a minute. Then the king of Israel said, Take Micaiah and return him to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, Thus says the king, Put this man in prison and feed him sparingly with bread and water until I return safely. But Micaiah said, If you indeed return safely, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, Listen, all you people. There's spiritual fruit. Micaiah is not fighting back. There's no self-defense. Just the word of the Lord. Let the word of the Lord stand. And if you come back safely, which is not what I said would happen, well then obviously I'm not speaking by the word of the Lord. Micaiah realizes his defense is the truth of the word he has spoken. Now Ahab thinks he can outsmart the prophecy. Watch what he does. Verse 29. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went up against Ramoth-Gilead. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, uh, I will disguise myself and go into the battle, but you put on your robes. <laughs> so the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle, and Jehoshaphat is being a little trusting, apparently, because he's going to wear his full kingly attire, and he's not paying attention or realizing what Ahab is doing here. You ever do that? Ahab dresses himself down to hide his position. To, to make himself seem other than what he is. Do you ever dress yourself up to make yourself look more royal spiritually? Or dress yourself down maybe when you're not around other Christians but you're with people in the world so we change our behavior a little bit. This is what Ahab is doing. He's changing his look. He's, he's trying to sneak into the battle and get away with it. If they don't know I'm the king, they can't kill me as the king. The truth is we can't hide the reality of who we are from the Lord. Verse 31, Now the king of Aram had commanded 32 captains of his chariots, saying, Do not fight with small or great, but with the king of Israel alone. Nice. This is the Ben-Hadad who was spared by Ahab, and now he's saying, Take Ahab out. I don't care if anyone else dies in this battle. You go after their king. You take him down. So when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, Surely it is the king of Israel. And they turned aside to fight against him, and Jehoshaphat cried out, I'm, I'm not Ahab. We don't know exactly what he said, but we know that they realized in that moment the captains of the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel and they turned back from pursuing him. Now, and I love this verse, a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel in a joint of the armor. This guy is out there on the hillside and goes, I don't know where to fire. Just a pang and off it goes and nails Ahab. Goes right in between the armor pieces on his chest. So he turned to the driver of his chariot and said, Turn around, take me out of the fight. I am severely wounded. Well, the battle raged that day, and the king was propped up in his chariot in front of the Aramaeans and died at evening. And watch this. And the blood from the wound ran into the bottom of the chariot. Then a cry passed throughout the army close to sunset, saying, Every man to his city and every man to his country. So the king died and was brought to Samaria, and they buried the king in Samaria. And they washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood. That's exactly what the prophecy was stated before. Now the harlots bathed themselves there. And the dogs licked up his blood according to the word of the Lord which he spoke. Now the rest of the act of Ahab and all that he did and the ivory house which he built and all the cities which he built are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel and they are not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel at least not in the book of chronicles. If they're written in another book that book is lost to us because we really don't have a whole lot else about Ahab. 
We don't really know of anything good that Ahab did. Just a whole lot of wickedness and evil. So Ahab slept with his fathers, and verse 40, Ahaziah his son became king in his place. And that's it for Ahab, the most wicked king of Israel. Now, the chapter closes out, but it doesn't really end. 1 Kings just kind of segues right on to the next book. Remember, this was originally one book, so we're just going to close out with a listing of the next generation of kings. Verse 41. Now Jehoshaphat, the son of Asa, became king over Judah in the fourth year of Ahab, king of Israel. Jehoshaphat was 35 years old when he became king, and he reigned 25 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Azubah, the daughter of Shilhai. He walked in all the way of Asa, his father, and did not turn aside from it, doing right in the sight of the Lord. That's Jehoshaphat. However, the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burnt incense on the high places. Jehoshaphat also made peace with the king of Israel. Now, verse 45, the rest of the acts of Jehoshaphat and his work which he showed and how he warred are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah. The remnant of the Sodomites who remained in the days of his father Asa, he expelled from the land. And so like Asa, his father, now Jehoshaphat went out and he found any Sodomites homosexuals and drove them from the land. We talked about that recently. Verse 47, now there was no king in Edom, a deputy was king. Verse 48, Jehoshaphat made ships of Tarshish to go to Ophir for gold. But they did not go for the ships were broken at Etzion Geber. Let me just point something out here. Second Chronicles chapter 20 tells us Jehoshaphat made a joint venture with Ahab's son, Ahaziah. Ahaziah is almost as wicked as his father is. But Jehoshaphat, they go in together on this venture to go get this gold of Ophir. But apparently it was a wicked venture, so the Lord busted up the ships. And we'll find out more about that when we study Second Chronicles. But why does the Lord mention this in His Word, both here and in Second Chronicles, that He made these ships and they did not go? They were broken at Etzion Gezer, or Etzion Geber. It's just another biblical example of unequal yoking. And the Lord would tell us that that's unwise to do. Do not be tied together in marriage or business with unbelievers because if their ships go down your ships go down their ship is sunk your ship is sunk Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians 6 verses 14 through 18 he says do not be bound together with unbelievers for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness or what harmony has Christ with Belial or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, the Lord says, come out from their midst and be separate. Now listen to this, gang. He says, do not touch what is unclean and I will welcome you. I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. I'll be a father to you. Come out and be separate. Be different. Don't be like the world. I will be your father, not a large woman named Papa. Well, apparently Jehoshaphat learned, for he didn't go the second time. 1 Kings 22, verse 49 says, Then Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, said to Jehoshaphat, Let my servants go with your servants in the ships. But Jehoshaphat was not willing. So this is now the second time they were going to go and get the gold. He said, No, I'm not in. I'm out. Verse 50. Jehoshaphat slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of his father David. And Jehoram, his son, became king in his place. 
Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel in Samaria in the seventeenth year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and he reigned two years over Israel. Verse 52, he did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. So he served Baal and worshipped him and provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger according to all that his father had done. And with that, we pause in the narrative of the kings until next week. But let me just say one more thing tonight. From time to time, as, as we study, I bring up different things like the shack or the emergent church or recently talked about Islam and the Koran. And, gang, I don't do it to point a finger of judgment. It's not my point. It's not my purpose. It's not trying to say we're right and they're wrong. The bottom line is I feel a strong call to encourage wisdom and discernment. We've got to learn to be discerning people. And the way we do it is exactly what you're doing. It's going through the Word. It's being in the Word. It is listening to the Spirit of God. It is testing all things by the Word that He's given to us. I feel so strongly about this. And I really, I really got upset when I hit this point in the book as I was reading along. But I didn't get upset because, I mean, it's just a book, okay? Ten bucks or whatever it is, big deal. But I got upset because I recognized that this is the kind of infiltration that Satan is going to try and use in the church. Warm blanket type stuff. Stuff that feels good, that draws you in, that speaks to your heart and to your emotions. And, oh, you know, why not portray God as, as a loving, large black woman who makes pancakes for you and embraces you and, and cooks for you and, and just speaks, and, and the, the southern accent and everything that's portrayed in this book, it, just, it sounds great, you know? Yeah, what a great way to view God. But it's a deception. And this is how Satan works, disguising himself as an angel of light. I feel so strongly about this because I honestly believe that we're living in the last days. I really do. And how important is it that we learn to discern truth in this time that we are told we will see greater and greater and greater deception? That's the promise. That's the guarantee. It's coming. Matthew 24, verse 3. Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives. And the disciples came to him privately and said, Tell us when these things will happen. What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to him, First thing out of his mouth, when they say, When is the end? What's the sign? What's it look like? First thing he says, See to it no one misleads you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And will mislead many. Be wise. And be discerning. Learn to discern truth for your families, your friends, for yourself. All I can do is implore you as I do myself with the same words that Moses spoke 3,500 years ago in Deuteronomy 32. Take to your heart all the words which I am warning you today, which you shall command your sons to observe carefully, even all the words of this law, for it is not an idle word for you indeed. It is your life.